Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 41 and we're dealing with two main things. Firstly, the shift in power amongst the Kosa at the end of the 18th century, then the arrival of the English in South Africa. Remember, we've been focusing on the Zurfeld as the Trekboers and the Amakosa both expanded their interest in the region. The fate of these contending parties would remain undecided for 20 years, and for the Amakosa, it was their fractured politics that weakened them precisely at the moment of their greatest threat. The indecisive Second Frontier War had left Nklambe, the most powerful Kosa chief in the West, but he couldn't seize ultimate control of the Zutfeld. The Trekboers were returning to their farms raised during the war. Although they did not return in the same numbers initially, the tension was set to rise again. In 1795, Ngika turned 17 and he immediately took action against his uncle Nklambe, who, as we know, had been ruling on his behalf until Ngika came of age. Ngika was not to be trifled with, although young. He was ambitious and pretty ruthless, as you're going to hear. As the tension rose amongst the Amakosa groups, it wasn't long before a mini-civil war broke out. In Columbia, we know, had sought assistance of the Abatembu and the frontier Boers at this time, but didn't make much difference to the outcome, I'm afraid. Kawuta, who was the Kosa paramount chief of the Amatraleka, had died in 1794, and Hinsa, who was his heir, was only five years old. While the Amatraleka took to the field in Nklambe's support, Nika defeated them all and took both Hinsa and Nklambe prisoner. It wasn't long before Nika left little Hinsa to go home, but not Nklambe. The former regent who'd ruled for so long on his nephew's behalf was now prisoner at Nika's great place. He was allowed to keep his wives and some cattle. His ignominy was complete, as John Labunt writes in his book Land Wars. The big problem for Nika was Nklambe's brother Mnyaluza, who realized that as first lieutenant he was probably going to be imprisoned or possibly killed, so he took it upon himself to cross the Fish River with many of his followers. He would become a thorn in Nika's side. The Amararabe were therefore split and became known as the Amangnika and the Amanklambe. While their rulers were ostensibly members of the royal Chawe clan, the reality was the Amangnika was a senior of the two. This meant Further, that both conceded royal precedence on rituals to the chief of the Amakaleka as the senior Chawe line in the area. But this power ended at the Kai River, whereas west of this boundary, the Amangnika and the Amamtlambe continued to contest and contend for supremacy. Nika was only just beginning once he'd seen of his uncle and the Amamtlambe. He concentrated power in his hands systematically by deposing councillors and by his use of traditional healers to smell out what he said were witches. He also began seizing the estates of commoners who died. Remember, I explained that the usual process was the king would get a single cow from commoners who died without leaving an heir. Now Nika threw away that convention in what can only be called a paroxysm of greed, took all the dead commoners' cattle. Nika began to peer more malevolently towards the west further into the Zufeld. Both the Imindange and the Amakunukwebe paid him tribute, but under extreme duress. They hated him, and this meant his position was not secure, further exacerbating his desire to use force and terror to oppress the people who were also facing the Trekpoors. Nika's omnipotence beyond the Kai River was then revealed when Nklambe and his brothers Sikao and Tlatla broke out of the great place and joined Mnyaluza and the rest of the Nklambe west of the fish in 1800, but we'll get there in a while. Upheavals far away in the world were going to have a major impact on the sleepy little southern African backwater shortly. 
The first attempts by the British at seizing the Cape failed miserably back in 1781, as we've heard, with the brilliant but obese French commander Bailly de Souffren defeating the English fleet at the Cape Verde Islands. The French then headed off to the Cape of Good Hope, where they landed a regiment to maintain control of the VOC's garrison. The French held onto the Cape, which was key to both the Southern Atlantic and Indian Ocean operations. The Dutch and the English then signed a peace treaty in 1784, which ended that war and the French garrison that had brought a spirit of French social mores to Cape Town departed. Back in Holland, the VOC was now aware that their treasured Cape stop was in danger from the British and voted to post a garrison of up to 3,000 soldiers there. The problem was the VOC was skint. It was in no financial position to maintain a garrison of any size in the Cape. The British had forced the VOC to sign a right of free trade deal regarding the Dutch East Indies, which was a war aim of the British. The Dutch company had been piling up enormous debts, and the trade with the East Indies didn't cover the interest, let alone the debt. During the war, the British had scooped up dozens of VOC ships as prizes, and for four years the company's international trade was literally at a standstill. This untenable situation resulted in the VOC staggering towards its termination. In the Cape, the economic bubble of the French occupation burst, and in 1792 things got worse for locals when the VOC further reduced its garrison at Cape Town. Various commissioners were dispatched to reduce costs there, but by the time the new Commissioner-General Abraham Slushkin arrived in 1793, the economic system at the Cape had collapsed. We've seen how this affected the area around Graaf Reinet already, with the rebellion by local farmers who had been tracking the VOC's weakness. And to make matters worse for Slushkin, the Eastern Cape was becoming more unstable. The Second Frontier War broke out, then the rebellion further exacerbated lawlessness. The 12 years intervening the end of the American War of Independence and the start of the global war with revolutionary France had seen a sudden industrialization of Britain and Europe. In Britain, many different factors fused to create a new dynamic which led to a high population growth and the demand for all sorts of new material goods. Invention of technologies and machines increased and highways and canal development began in earnest. In the 1770s and 80s, new forms of banking and insurance began, which funded the nascent industrial revolution. As the end of the 18th century approached, a considerable part of England's prosperity was beginning to swing to its markets abroad. British industry increased its export production by 450%, while its internal growth grew 52% through the 18th century. And crucial to this trade into the beginning of the 19th century was cotton, and China began to feature in merchants' discussions. China had locked the world out of her interior and controlled all trade on its coasts. Foreigners were confined to Canton, and the British, like the Portuguese, the French, the Dutch, and the Scandinavians, had trading rights there. These were the last days of the great East India companies, and Britain had deployed 200,000 tons of shipping there, along with 3,000 sailors. The English East India Company was also heading into difficult economic times, and the Chinese trade kept it alive. Much of London's diplomatic work was being carried out in China to try and improve the balance of trade issues, where the value of what Europe sold to China was only one-third of what they bought. Back in France, the reign of terror was now underway, and the fanatic Maximilian Robespierre and his lunatics on the so-called Committee of Public Safety were finally executed in 1794. But the Revolutionary National Convention continued, which exhilarated hosts of people around the world who breathed in the hot air of 
revolutionary speak. Graf Reinet farmers were one of these drawing a hot breath. Local Landrost mania was booted out in 1795, as we've heard, and Swellendam's burghers also expelled their Landrost, while their overriding rhetoric was one of fashionable populism, or what you could call guerrilla chic. What they really wanted was to recapture cattle lost to the Tosa in the Second Frontier War and then to send the Tosa back across the Fish River. So, the same week that this group of slightly confused but fashionably chic trekboers seized Graf Rennet and Swellendam, a British fleet appeared in False Bay. It was there to secure British interests as the World War was being waged against France. The British had no real interest in South Africa during this phase. They merely wanted the ports and the refreshment stations. There was no idea of colonizing this somewhat dangerous part of the world. The major strategic aim was to hold the Cape to prevent it from being seized by the French in order to use it as a naval base as part of the crucial logistics route to and from India and China. Captain John Blanket of the Royal Navy wrote in January 1795 about what a feather in the hands of Holland will become a sword in the hands of France. St. Helena had been useful as a storage base and basic island support for fleets, but it was desolate and ships had to wait for prevailing winds and currents to suit their return voyages from India. It was also a barren volcanic rock with very little water for its own needs, let alone large convoys. So in February 1795, the British government extracted written instructions from the Dutch Prince of Orange, who'd fled to England when Republicans overran Holland and declared a Batavian Republic. The Prince's instruction was to the commanders of all the Netherlands' possessions to assist British ships and troops. Into our story steps Scotsman Henry Dundas, later to be styled as Lord Melville. He was a Scottish advocate and independent Whig politician and trusted lieutenant of British Prime Minister William Pitt. Things were going to be very confusing now for the Cape Tonians. Britain had no real claim to the Cape. William Pitt the Younger believed that because Prince William of Orange was the real ruler of the Netherlands, the British could seize the Cape, claiming they were protecting the Dutch base and others in Ceylon and the Dutch East Indies, thereby protecting the all-important Indian and Chinese businesses. And so the Q letter was drawn up for the Governor Slushkin at the Castile in the Cape. You should admit British forces in and surrender the territory to the British as a measure of protection against the French. The big problem when the six vessels under Vice Admiral Sir George Keith Elphinston and four others under Commodore John Blanket arrived is that the Dutch at the Cape had no idea that the Prince of Orange had been deposed and fled to Britain. Needless to say, Slushkin was suspicious of the letter. He was even more suspicious because the British fleet had arrived with a military force of 515 soldiers under Major General Sir James Henry Craig. A small problem for the English is they hadn't sent any cavalry or artillery. However, a large fleet of 14 more vessels were in the Brazilian port of San Salvador da Bahia, waiting orders to lend support in Africa. The Dutch defences around the peninsula were centred on the castle in Cape Town, but many other smaller earthwork forts and batteries had been erected around the peninsula to create a system of formidable defensive lines. These had 400 artillery pieces, a significant threat to the British. However, the Dutch did not have sufficient numbers of soldiers to place across this system. The garrison had 1,302 men and officers, including an infantry battalion and an artillery corps. They were mostly paid German mercenaries and then the unreliable and unruly Berger militia, whose numbers were around 1,000 or perhaps 2,000 on a really good day. 
There were also 200 men of the Corps van Panduren. These were the Khoikhoi and mixed-race soldiers who were armed in 1793 when France had declared war on Holland. Some recruits from the Moravian mission at Baviaanskloof joined in as well. The British had done their homework and duly arrived in 1795, mid-winter. Because of the shortage of soldiers available to defend the extensive coastline of the peninsula, False Bay was thinly held by the VOC. It was there that the two divisions of the advanced British expedition anchored on the 11th of June, 1795, just off Simonstown. On June the 14th, two British officers went ashore with the confusing Prince of Orange's order to Slushkin. He was in a bit of a dilemma. Slushkin and his remaining troops were strongly posted between Musenberg and Table Bay, so it was fortunate that on the 18th of June, Elphinstone had foreseen possible problems and already sent his fastest sloop to Major General Clark at San Salvador in Brazil with a request for reinforcements. Most of the burghers and men stationed in the Cape supported the Batavian patriots against the Prince of Orange, while the VOC officials and officers supported the House of Orange. Swellendam and Graf Reinet were in open rebellion, and to complicate matters still further, rumours were circulating suggesting that the new Dutch Batavian Republic had signed a deal with the French. Talk about confusing times! Slushkin did what most politicians do in this situation and tried to buy time by doing nothing and hoping that things would develop one way or the other. Unfortunately for him, during negotiations, the British envoys were allowed free movement in town and made detailed observations of his defences. The two armies observed an uneasy truce, broken by occasional patrols and sniping. During this period, Elphinstone and Slushkin continued negotiations for the surrender of the colony. It took two more weeks for nothing to turn into something when Slushkin received definite news from Dutch ships of the Franco-Batavian alliance. Yes, the French and the Batavians were indeed in an alliance against the English. Slushkin promptly terminated negotiations, stopped the sale of provisions to the British, and on 29th of June withdrew his forces to a strongly fortified position at Musenberg on the north side of False Bay. He held the main pass, which was the only road to Cape Town at the time. The British who delayed any attack, were hoping for a peaceful takeover, but their hopes were dashed. On the 7th of August, with negotiations stalled, naval commander Elphinstone ordered an attack on the pass at Musenberg. Craig's forces were supplemented by 1,000 sailors from Elphinstone's squadron redeployed on land. Interestingly, among this force were a number of American citizens who immediately deserted to the Dutch and were promised repatriation home. More about them in a moment. At noon on the 7th of August, HMS America, Stately, Echo and Rattlesnake opened fire on Dutch forward positions. Return fire from Dutch field guns killed two men on America and wounded three others, while Craig's troops were able to advance against the Dutch positions and seize them, with the Dutch defenders retreating in confusion. A second attack by soldiers of the 78th captured a rocky height nearby, and a Dutch counter-attack the following morning was driven off by Hardy's sailors and marines, with the steadiness of the British regulars putting the German mercenaries to flight, and that engagement ended swiftly, with few casualties. The Dutch fell back to Weinberg, but British forces were not strong enough to advance, suffering shortages of food and ammunition. 200 men were already down with scurvy, and a full frontal attack on Cape Town with its heavily gunned batteries was out of the question. In this ever-changing little event on the tip of Africa, Elphinstone's position then improved by the reinforcements which arrived in the Arniston on the 9th of August. 
The British commander authorized the seizure of five Dutch East Indiamen merchant ships at anchor in Simonstown on 18th of August, and skirmishing continued throughout the month, with stronger Dutch attacks on the 1st and 2nd September, followed by a large planned assault on Simonstown on the 3rd of September, in which Slushkin committed all his reserves, including 18 cannon, but it was too late. That morning, 14 East India Company ships were seen arriving in Simons Bay, and the attack was cancelled. These ships were the reinforcement fleet under Clark, who landed 4,000 troops from the 95th and 98th Regiments of Foot, the 2nd Battalions of the 78th and the 84th Regiments of Foot, and a contingent of EIC troops from St. Helena. They all swept ashore at Simonstown for an overland campaign against Cape Town. Clark's army then advanced against Dutch pickets, losing one killed and 17 wounded in skirmishes. To support his operation, Elphinstone sent America, Rattlesnake Echo and the Indiaman Bombay Castle to blockade Cape Town and provide artillery support. Major General Craig had to attack Cape Town in the meantime, but had been defeated at Steenbach and at a place that was to become aptly known as Retreat. As Lushkin looked out from the castle, he realized that the British now had overwhelming superiority, but he still refused to surrender. Things didn't take long after that. Initially, the British threatened to bomb the castle and the batteries in Table Bay, but in the end, they merely advanced their army starting on 14th September. Slushkin was holding Weinberg Hill, 15 kilometers from Cape Town. The German mercenaries now deserted, and some say it was because their commanding officer had been bribed by the British. But to their credit, the motley crew of burghers held out for a while, then broke. On the 16th September, the capitulation was signed at Rustenburg House, the Commissioner-General's country home in Rondebosch. Not before Slushkin had slyly allowed 40 British deserters in Cape Town to escape into the countryside before the signing. Most of these were press-ganged Americans who had been forced onto the British sailing ships long before. The total of British losses were four killed and 54 wounded, for the Dutch around eight dead and over 100 wounded. While there were sighs of relief back in Whitehall, in the Cape, things were quite another matter. The Dutch at the Cape handed over the property and rights of the VOC and then were ordered to take an oath of allegiance to George III and the Cape was formally entered into the records as a British possession. The rights of the Prince of Orange were quietly dropped and that was the end of Holland's direct control over South Africa. Major General Craig now took over control of the Cape and he was immediately classed as very different from the Dutch commanders. For a start, he gained a name as a vigorous, humane and scrupulously honest administrator, which was quite a shock for many burghers and boers who'd become so used to the VOC-style corruption. Meanwhile, Clark headed off to India along with Elphinstone in November 1795. War conditions continued at the Cape and Craig spent a great deal of time increasing the peninsula's fortifications against the possible Franco-Batavian attempt to retake the strategic port. A strong Royal Navy presence was retained in the bay against an amphibious attack and a new strategic naval base was planned for Simonstown. While Craig's men and locals built their defences, he continued to view his greatest threat as coming from the ocean. He was wrong. Trouble was also brewing on the frontier. While all districts of the Cape grudgingly took the oath of allegiance to King George III, Graf Rennet did not. Anti-British sentiment was universal so that the Graf Rennet rebels were regarded with some degree of pride by the burghers who muttered about how the British had stolen the land. On the 29th of October 1795, 
The Graaf Reinet rebels wrote to Craig explaining that their rebellion was against the extortion of the VOC and against the conciliatory pro amatosa and Khoi policies of Landros Meinier. They said this had endangered them. Craig was firm in his response but offered his own form of conciliation to the Trekpoors. He sent Franz Bresler, the former VOC official and one of the more reliable at that, to take over as Landros. Bresler duly arrived at the mud and door buildings in Grafrenet on the 9th of February 1796 and immediately raised the Union flag. The rebels duly tore the flag down and then refused to take the oath of allegiance to King George III. Bresler fled the district as had Manier, and now Craig had a real problem of his own on this unstable frontier. He obviously had no option at this point as the military commander of a garrison. The rebels must have known that they were going to face a military force once their clear message had been sent to Craig. They, however, believed their lonely location made their position tenable, but they'd completely underestimated what the British Empire could throw at them. First, Craig cut off all lead and powder supplies to Graf Reinet, leaving the rebels exposed to attacks by the Amakosa, purposefully weakening their resolve. Then he set about building his military force based at Stellenbosch. Among the first troops he turned to were the Khoikhoi and mixed-race Korf and Bundurin, which the British called the Panduas. Craig thought if he could cultivate Khoikhoi loyalty, he could create an effective local military counterweight to the suspect Trekboer and Berger population. By May 1796, Craig had managed to recruit more than 100 Christian converts from Gernadendal Mission and concentrated them at the Pandur headquarters in Weinberg near Cape Town. This meant his Pandur force was over 300 men who were now being paid sixpence a week, which most used to buy tobacco. They were also given the same rations and drink as the British troops that were garrisoned at the Cape, further motivating the unit who knew they were being paid equally. This corps in the coming years would grow to become one of the oldest military units in South Africa, and in 1801 changed its name to the Hottentot Corps, and officially listed as a British line regiment, adding prestige. The corps uniform was colourful to impress potential recruits, with its scarlet jackets trimmed with red and white lace, yellow facings and white buttons, blue cloth waistcoats and trousers, round flat-topped hat with a hackle and leather shoes, although most corps soldiers discarded their shoes in battle, preferring to run barefoot. Then Craig turned his gaze back to Graf Reinet, but he was forced to delay action because intelligence reports in January 1796 confirmed that the Batavians supported by the French allies were indeed planning an expedition to retake the Cape. The British government was in no mood to allow that to happen, and strong naval and military reinforcements were hurried to the Cape from Madras and India and from England. By the end of July 1796, there were 8,400 troops at the Cape, with another 1,000 on their way. Elphinstone had also sailed back from India to take command and patrolled the seaways with 14 ships. What happened next, both to the Batavians who were on their way to the Cape and to the rebels in Graf Reinet, is for next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and if you have any comments, you can contact me via my website desmondlatham.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, tootsies.